This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Land, Sea, and Sky. Since 1940, birders have turned to the optics experts at Land, Sea, and Sky to purchase just the right pair of binoculars for their birding adventures. The shop has hundreds of binoculars and spotting scopes in stock, an industry-leading 90-day return policy, and experienced staff to lend you a helping hand. If you'll be in Texas for spring migration, stop by their shop in Houston or visit them anytime at LandSeaSkyCo.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I was trying to think of things that happened in the last couple weeks since the last episode came out to talk about here. And there's, I admit there's not a lot. We're sort of in a doldrum period so far as birds are concerned. Migration is... You know, what migration there is is pretty slow. The, bi- the biggest part of it is still months away. Birds have started singing, but you know it's clear that none of them really mean it. And I can tell that that wren outside my window is just bored. And the only thing that, that came to mind was that annual event that he enables our most enduring passion in many of us and, and sort of deep-seated frustration and regret in others. It is, of course... The Great Backyard Bird Count. A kid, of course. The Great Backyard Bird Count is a, is a pretty phenomenal citizen science undertaking. It, it encourages tons of people who otherwise might not be in our birding circles to get involved, and that is an objectively wonderful thing. It gives people a reason to go out and, and bird for a purpose, you know, beyond what, what usually drives you to head out into the field and look for birds. And, and I say as a birder who really enjoys it when people find unusual birds in my state that the, the Great Backyard Bird Count has a pretty good track record for that sort of stuff. Uh, once you weed through the mistaken IDs that make eBird reviewers who are tasked with looking at all the data kind of nuts... The, that's the frustration and regret that I mentioned earlier. And I, and I say that as an eBird reviewer, albeit one that has offloaded most of my everyday reviewing responsibilities on, on other suckers. I mean, birders. The, you know, the Cornell folks have gotten a lot better about heading off that sort of thing to their credit. You know, finding those persistent issues, making sure that people aren't calling their red-bellied woodpeckers red-headed woodpeckers or their, their white-throated sparrows, white-crowned sparrows, despite the fact that they, they do have red heads and white crowns. It does increasingly feel very much like that, the well-oiled machine that, that gets this, you know, this population snapshot of the birds, but can also really tempt people into the larger birding world, which is, of course, what it was always meant to be, which is what, what we want. But it is a big job, so my condolences to the reviewers out there toiling in the bird record salt mines. Your work is appreciated. One more piece of good news. The ABA has recently announced our 2018 Young Birders of the Year. They are Adam Dalla of Coquitlam, British Columbia, in the younger group, and Teodolina Martelli from Thousand Oaks, California, in the older group. Congratulations to them both. This is the, the 20th year of our Young Birder of the Year program, which is pretty incredible. It has been a launching point for a lot of great young birders and conservationists, some of which are no longer young birders or conservationists, just birders and conservationists. Many, most, if not all, are, are still heavily involved in their birding communities and doing really great things. 
We're going to hear about some of those great things in this episode. The the ABA Leica Subital Weed Ears are a team of, of college-age birders in the U.S., all with ties to the ABA's Young Birder programs. And they are tackling the Champions of the Flyway Bird Competition in Israel in late March. You will hear from them at the end of the episode. But first... In 2017, Evie Morell took on a big, big year traveling across the U.S. and Canada to end up with an impressive total, which looks like it's going to be third best all time. She has some interesting insights about big year birding and the continental birding community. I think you're going to enjoy that. I'll be talking with her right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of February 2018. It was another relatively slow period without a ton of new noteworthy birds from outside the ABA area. Most interesting is probably an adult black-tailed gull. It's an ABA Code 4 species in Del Norte County, California, in the far north of the state. Black-tailed gull is native to East Asia, but has been recorded in the ABA area several dozen times, most commonly in Alaska, as is typical for those things. But there are records just about everywhere in the U.S. and Canada, owing likely to a greater ability of birders to find unusual Asian gulls. There are birds whose records are increasing because there really are more of them out there in the U.S. and Canada, and there are birds whose records are increasing because birders are better at finding them. Black-tailed gull, along with slatyback gull, definitely seems to be in the second category. Black-tailed gull has been a nearly annual occurrence somewhere in the non-Alaska part of the ABA area in recent years, including a young bird just last year, also in California. One first record for the period from Tennessee, which is also a goal. A young mugle in Shelby County represents a first for that state and likely the result of the same sort of increase in birder ability and awareness I mentioned before. Another record of note from Wisconsin, a Clark's Nutcracker in Oneida County was the state's sixth, but it was also the first record in this state in 45 years. So at a certain point, a bird like that feels as much like a state first as any actual state first. With the big fires out west late last summer, some birders were predicting a good year for nutcrackers moving eastward, and the early winter saw some records from Nebraska and Minnesota, but not a lot elsewhere. This Wisconsin record, though, suggests that there was more going on than maybe we suspected at the time. This is only a little portion of the rare bird news for the last couple weeks. For all of the notable records from around the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday. And for up-to-the-minute news about rare birds in North America, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. We also have a Twitter feed that mirrors that group. It is at ABA bird alert. In 2017, Florida birder Evie Morell did what a lot of us dream about doing, took a full year and attempted an ABA area big year. And when the dust settled, she ended up with 813 species, plus four more provisional species, a total that will be number three all time. It looks like an impressive result to be sure. Evie's here to talk with me about her big year. Thanks for joining me, Evie. Thank you for having me. Let's start from the beginning. You started 2017 sort of in the wake of four really impressive big year efforts the year before. Did you go into the year sort of expecting to end up with the total kind of up where they were? Is that something that you meticulously planned from the beginning or was it sort of a modest effort that got out of hand? 
Uh, no, I, I always had in the back of my mind that I would do an ABA area big year, and I'm good friends with Greg Miller, and we had birded together a lot in the past and discussed the possibility of me doing a big year, and he gave me some great advice. So everything in my life kind of came together in 2016 for me to be able to take an entire year out of my regular life to devote exclusively to birding. And one of the key elements was I wanted to include ATU as part of my big year experience. Yeah, absolutely. And since there's no longer, you know, a Coast Guard station on ATU, you can only get there by going with uh, John Pushak of Suganruhe uh, Birding. So I had contacted John last summer and asked him if he was planning on doing an ATU trip. And he said if the numbers were right, he was definitely going in May. So that's kind of what I hinged my big year on. If John was doing a trip, then I was doing my big year in 2017. Otherwise, I was going to postpone it one more year. Yeah, and and John's ATU trip is really great. It goes to show that, you know, the, the big year is is as much about the experience as it is about the numbers, you mean you can conceivably do a big year without Atu. It's such a storied part of big year ABA birding history. You definitely want that to be part of it. Exactly. I wanted that to be part of the experience, the mystique, uh, being part of history, being on a deserted island, basically. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And even just the pelagic trip there and back, the experiences that you have on the boat are unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. So, so once that was in place, I really kind of let the big year develop Organically, I, Obviously, I planned a couple of trips at the beginning of the year, and then I basically let the birds dictate to me where I needed to be. Uh, once rarity started showing up, then, you know, I did a lot of chasing, but I didn't chase every single rare bird that showed up because I had gotten advice from other big-year birders about how to strategize chasing rarities. And, you know, a lot of times a rare bird shows up in the lower 48, but it's a bird that you could potentially see a lot easier in Alaska during one of your trips. Right. Yeah. Alaska's going to have a lot of stuff there. And you spent a lot of time in Alaska last year. You almost have to, to have a real competitive big year. I think every big year birder starts out thinking they're not going to spend that much time in Alaska. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, I said at the beginning, I'm going to go to Attu and maybe go on one fall trip to Alaska. Well, I ended up going to Alaska six times and spent (laughs) 51 days there. So, Wow. It's a it's a very big component of a big year. Yeah, and it and it certainly paid off too. I mean, last fall especially was extraordinary. We you know we talked about those four provisional species. Well, two of those are are ABA first that turned up on Gamble and one right after another. And you happened to be lucky enough to be there yes. to, to get them. And you know, I made a special trip to Nome for the pied weed ear. Mm-hmm. Alaska, there's just no describing the experience of Alaska, because not only do you have incredible birds, but you get to see birds in their breeding plumage, which when you live in the lower 48, shorebirds are special, but they're to see them in their breeding grounds, in the numbers, and in their beautiful plumage, 
that alone is is priceless. And then you add on top of that all of these incredible mammals that you're seeing when you're in Alaska and the, the terrain being out in the tundra. It's it's just I don't see how anyone could not want to visit Alaska. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. Yes, it is. And then, then you contrast that with Hawaii, which mm-hmm. intrigued me as soon as the ABA included Hawaii. I, I was all for it because it adds such a completely different element to the big year, mm-hmm. not just from a strategy standpoint, because now you're deciding to go to a group of islands that's not exactly close to the mainland. So from a big year standpoint, those weeks that I spent in Hawaii prevented me from chasing anything on the mainland. That goes into the the strategic part of a big year. Uh, Victor and Ruben decided to stay in Gamble for a month. Well, I decided to spend an extra two weeks in Hawaii. So our big years were, were completely different from a strategy standpoint, and yet we ended up practically with the same exact number. Very close, yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting. How did you how did you plan for Hawaii? You know, there are certain islands that you need to get to, certain birds you need to find on those islands. Did you plan on going there only once and just trying to clean up as much as you could while you were Initially, there? Initially, I was going to do the Hawaiian Islands by myself and just kind of explore and, and try to see the greatest number of, of species. And then I, I got to thinking that no one had really included Hawaiian pelagic birds. Right. So right. I started doing some investigating and realized that the only opportunity to be out on the water was during the Hawaii Birding Festival. So I signed up for that mm-hmm. and was able to go out on two pelagic trips. And it was incredible, the, the diversity of wildlife out on the water and how close to shore the birds were, it, it may have been the deciding factor because I saw uh, four species of birds out on the water that no one else was able to see. Yeah, absolutely. One of the great things about big ears, especially the sort of big ears in the 21st century, is the connectivity of it all, both in terms of people following you on your blog and on social media, but also things like eBird and you know, just the speed at which people can let you know about good birds. Did you find that to be a help on the whole, or was it a little bit overwhelming, like a fire hose? <laughs> I, can, I can see how I, it could be both. Yes, I, you know, there's no question that eBird has completely transformed the birding landscape. And, mm-hmm. you know, just the ease with which we can locate birds based on previous sightings and how quickly the information gets to us via eBird alerts. There were several species that I don't think I would have ever had an opportunity to, to find. A, a great example is Nutting's flycatcher. Uh, having that, that data of the exact location where this very small breeding population was located out in the desert, you, you're not going to spend 10 hours trying to locate you know, a couple of mating pairs of birds unless you have a little more information than that. Were there any experiences that you had during your year that, looking back, seem especially amazing or overwhelming? Uh, yes. I mean, the the chase for the ivory gull had to rate as the most incredible, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, when that bird showed up in Flint, Michigan, 
I just happened to be home in Florida, and without hesitation, I didn't even book a flight. I, w- I drove to the airport and just decided I, I was going to get on a plane and go to Detroit. <laughs> well, when I got to Detroit, I didn't realize that they had had 70-mile-an-hour winds that day, <laughs> and the entire city was without power, so I couldn't find a hotel room. So it took me till two in the morning in one of the coldest days of the year to finally find what I would remotely call a hotel room. (laughs) It was just (laughs) shelter. And then the next day to get out there in this freezing cold with about another hundred birders all there for the same purpose. And it took us five or six hours to finally locate the bird and when when that moment happened and we all got to share it, it was such a bonding experience that I have stayed friends with 10 or 12 people that I met there that day because this this experience was just something we could not describe to other people, but everyone that was there yeah. was affected. So much so that the the young woman that found the bird originally was a student at the college and we started a college fund for her. And by the first yeah. day, we had raised $1,200. Wow, that's great. So it, it's, it's, it shows you the power of birding, that it could yeah. unite this random group of people that, that bonded over this experience and stayed connected. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sort of gives me to, you know, my next question. Spending a year birding around the U.S. and Canada, you means you inevitably spend a lot of time with a lot of birders all over the continent. Did you come away from your year with a sort of any insight into the North American birding community now that you've had a few weeks to kind of sit on it, decompress a little? Yes. I mean, I n- always knew that birding was popular, more popular than people realize, but I had no idea just to what extent birding has been popularized. I mean, yeah. everywhere I went, whenever I was chasing any rarity, there would be, you know, 50, 75, 100 people there trying to see the specific bird. And, you know, through some of the guides that I hired for specific targets, and they would describe the local birding scene, it it was amazing to just see how many people are out there birding. And because, again, of the technological aspect, it's getting more and more people interested and and people are so willing to help. The minute anyone would find out I was in the area, I would have total strangers trying to contact me and provide me with information, provide me with a place to sleep if I wanted. It 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 was just amazing the outpouring from the birding community. Yeah, yeah, it's really remarkable the extent to which these sort of efforts galvanize the birding community, how it the closeness that sometimes local communities feel becomes national. You know, it's it's across the entire countries of the U.S. and Canada. Everyone is is involved. Everyone is invested. Is sort of a fascinating thing to witness. And you can see that going on right now with the missile thrush in New Brunswick, that it's still there and that the homeowners continue to provide daily information yeah, about the bird. People that have this opportunity to host a bird become very attached to it, and it becomes a storyline in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You've certainly seen that both 
in the case of the Missile Thresh and the folks that hosted the the Black Vectorio. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, a remarkable story in both cases. Was there anything about the big year experience that sort of surprised you that you didn't expect? Yes. I mean, no one can really describe how monumental this effort is. Um, when you start out, you have some vague concept that there's going to be birds that are going to be very difficult to find. But what I wasn't prepared for was how many hours certain targets required. Um, you know, just looking back now, I was I was tallying up how many hours I spent trying to find a, a barnacle goose. Well, when you th- <laughs> when you think that I saw 817 species of birds, but yet I devoted four full days to trying to find a barnacle goose. Uh, barnacle goose is one of those species that you know you sort of feel like. I mean, they show up fairly regularly in the Northeast. It shouldn't be too difficult, but once it comes down to really trying to nail one down, it it can be really hard. Exactly, and that's that was a big surprise that. When you think about the targets that really become difficult, people would say to me, oh my gosh, you don't have a Philadelphia Vireo. They're all over the place. That's <laughs> not true. If you, if Time is an element. And so, yeah. if you are specifically trying to find a bird when you want it, it's not as yeah. easy, even if you're in the proper habitat or where it's being seen on a regular basis, because mm-hmm. how you allocate your time becomes the most important factor in a big year. And so, when do you pull the plug on a chase? And it's very hard because as humans, if we've invested a lot of time into something, we don't want to fail. So, you have right. to be a little bit detached. And that's I, I found that very difficult, that once I had invested one or two days in a bird, it became almost an obsession to try to see it. And mm-hmm. you have to pull yourself out of the situation and go, okay, that's enough. I have other targets. It's the uh, the sunk cost fallacy. You know, you you put in so much time, you feel like the next the next one's going to pay off. It's how they get you at the casinos in Vegas. Too. Yes, <laughs> and 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 then you know you add to that the loneliness aspect of a big year that you're doing this completely on your own, even though you have mm-hmm. help from others. The decision making is all your own. Mm-hmm. How you strategize, where you decide to go, um, like I said, how many days you're going to devote to a target, that becomes a weight that I think has influenced a lot of big years where people either give up because the effort is so monumental or just the grinding aspect of a big year in terms of travel, how many hours you spend at an airport, how many hours you spend in a car, um, even hiking. Uh, Some days I hiked 10 to 15 miles. Mm -hmm. Your body, you know, starts to give out. So, it's it's not just a a contest of skill, it's also a contest of stamina. We're talking just over a month after your big year ended. Do you do you miss it at all now that the year is over? Yes, I think there is a letdown, and I, w- I was told about this too. You're on this quest that requires your entire skill set, emotionally, physically, and you're just so geared up, and you're surviving on adrenaline, and all of a sudden, it comes to a screeching halt. Um, I wake up every morning still 
disoriented because I look around and I realize I'm in my own room. (laughs) (laughs) I only spent 17 days in my own bed last year. So, even that aspect is difficult because every morning I wake up thinking that I have somewhere to go. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you, you... you take some time off. I've taken some time off to rest up and to reflect, but I have a trip scheduled for Panama in two weeks. And so, <laughs> there you, go. you know, this is not hair the dog. <laughs> this is not going to stop anytime yeah, that's right. soon. That's right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Evie. Evie Morell's 2017 big year is chronicled at her blog, The Dancing Birder. Congratulations on a great year. It was a lot of fun to talk to you about Thank it. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate it. At the end of March, a group of young birders from the U.S. are tackling the Champions of the Flyway, an international birding competition that raises money and support for BirdLife International's efforts to end illegal bird trapping and hunting around the Mediterranean. It is one of the most pressing bird conservation issues in the old world. This is the first year that the ABA has sponsored a team at Champions, and we are really excited to get behind one that showcases both youth and diversity. I want to introduce this team to you and hopefully encourage podcast listeners to throw a few bucks their way to help support them. And if you do, I might be able to do something for you. I'll talk about that at the end. So without further ado, the ABA Leica Subadult Weed Ears. I'm Marky Mutchler, and I'm currently at LSU, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Basically, I've gone to a lot of the young birder camps, uh, Colorado and Avocet for ABA. Um, And I entered the ABA Young Bird of the Year competition, and I gained that title in 2015. I am Johanna Beam. I am currently in Lyons, Colorado, um, even though I go to St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. I am the 2017 Young Birder of the Year. So that's kind of how I've been involved with the ABA. I'm Aiden Place. I'm originally from Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, but I'm currently living in Bosnia and Herzegovina on a gap year. I did Camp Colorado in, I think it was 2015. And then I'm one of the editors of the area, the ABA's youth blog, birder blog. For me, I'm really excited just to meet more international birders. Uh, I don't really get to travel outside of the ABA area much, so that's something I'm really looking forward to. I would pretty much agree with Marky there. I've never been out of the ABA area, so I'm really excited to see new birds and meet new people. Just to experience a different culture, a different culture of birding, especially, and conservation efforts and that sort of thing. Yeah, I've been wanting to bird Israel for a super long time, so I'm really excited for that just from the bird perspective. But um, obviously, I'm really excited about the fundraising aspect of this, especially since the money is going to Croatia and um, Serbia, which Bosnia is a neighbor to. So I'm really excited to be raising money for an area I'm interested in and that I currently live in. I'm currently in Adirne, which is in the Balkan part of Turkey. And just today, um, near my hostel, there I was um, seeing like caged um, goldfinches that were presumably poached from somewhere in the area. Um, and I've seen that in a number of Balkan countries I've been to. Most notably in Albania, there was a lot of really heavy, um, it's particularly almost always goldfinches, like a, re- a lot of really heavy cage bird trade of goldfinches going on. Um, so yeah, I've, I've seen quite a lot of it, unfortunately. I think even without sort of the issue affecting the ABA in particular, the ABA area in particular, it's cool that it's sort of, but that conservation programs worldwide sort of build this like culture of bird conservation and like appreciation of nature and willingness to conserve nature. Absolutely. Our, our birds are not restricted to our regions and we enjoy the vagrants and other uh, global species. Um, and I think it's important to have kind of a global perspective on 
uh, what species are out there. So I think, yeah, conservation programs, no matter where they are, are sort of valuable in building a global will to support bird life. Um, I think that as American birders, we, and especially as like me being a young birder, I tend to not really know what to do for conservation efforts. And I think that focusing on a more worldwide scale is, um, it's, it's harder to do, but I think it's very necessary for us to get out of our ABA area and think about what's going on in other places. Cause a lot of us tend to just bird in the ABA area and if we start thinking more globally, we can have a larger impact. We are the future. Uh, we have to take charge and and lead the world in conservation efforts. I mean, that's it's the world we're going to live in. So <laughs> we better do something. <laughs> I, I really enjoy um, even just seeing some of my other young bird friends who weren't really aware of some of these problems, like in the Balkans, are suddenly being like encouraged to look into it and to support these other uh, programs like Bird Life International and such. Um, and so it kind of gives me like, hope in that regard. Um, yeah, as it was said earlier, a lot of young birders, it's hard for us to know what to do for conservation because, I mean, we're still like growing up. We're not fully sort of in the world yet, I guess. And so I think this is like it's an exciting opportunity to show other young birders like that it's possible for us to do something and to make some sort of an impact on bird conservation, even without having careers yet. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You can support the ABA Leica subadult wheat ears at their Just Giving page. The URL is a bit of a mouthful, so I'll just put the link in the notes. Please help out if you can. If you donate and leave a little note saying the podcast sent you, then I will include your name in the credits of an upcoming episode. The real credits. If that sounds like something you would like, then then help us out. Oh, one more thing from the wheat ears. I asked them what birds they were looking forward to seeing the most. Um, it's going to sound cliche because it's the name of our team, but I'm really excited for Weedoos. <laughs> I'm pretty big fan of Wagtails, too. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to see a sunbird. Yeah, I was going to say sand grouse, yeah. Lichtensteins, I'm really hoping. <gasps> yes, I do love the sand grouse. Um, the blue rock thrush, too, so... The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Joining the ABA has many benefits, including annual subscriptions to our two magazines, Birding and Birder's Guide, discounts to partners like BDO Books, ability to participate in ABA events, and the knowledge that you are helping to support free resources like this podcast and helping to build a better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. Get information at aba.org join. Special thanks to Jennifer and Aaron Laratonda of Las Vegas, Nevada, Ben West of Jersey City, New Jersey, Danette Henderson of Boise, Idaho, and Susan Utley of Nashville, Tennessee, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Welcome to the ABA and thanks for your support. A quick apology to Kendall Lloyd, who I mentioned in this space in the last episode. I said she when I should have said he. My defense, this is not the only mistake of this sort I have made. I have issues with ducks in eclipse plumage too. So sorry, Kendall, I shouldn't have tried to identify you in the late summer. 
Uh, we're still seeking participants in our demographic advertising survey. Link is in the show notes. We absolutely appreciate your help there. If you've made it this far, perhaps I can encourage you to go just a bit farther and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps make us better and helps people find us. Thank you for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His ability to identify water birds from a moving car has earned him the nickname the champion of the causeway. Technical production is by John Lowry. His impressive dedication to not only yard listing, but yard games has caused us to dub him the champion of the croquet. Extra help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. Not only are they phenomenal web developers, but they are demons on the baseball diamond as well, especially when Greg is on third and David bunts him home. We call them the champions of the squeeze play. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are, as our friends to the North can attest, big time champions of the Grey Jay. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.